God, as we open your word, I pray that we would have ears to hear and eyes to see how you want us to understand and respond to your truth. Thank you, Lord, that you care enough about us to give us your truth. We praise you for the salvation that you've called us to. I pray that we would be changed by looking at your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bible this morning, Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. This morning we're going to continue what we've been looking at. We're going to be focusing on verse 9 down towards the end of the chapter. Titus chapter 1. I've entitled the message this morning, Holding Fast to the Truth. Holding Fast to the Truth. If you were going to make a summary of verses 5 down to the end of the chapter, chapter 1, and you were going to say, what are the three characteristics of elders? Verses 5 through 8 would describe their godly character. The second characteristic, verse 9, you could say a strong grip on the word. Number three, a bold defense that we're going to see in the face of opposition and false teachers. So, so we, could, we could label it and characterize it, outline it different ways, but that's really the handles that I'm grabbing onto. We've got a, they're men of godly character. They're men with a strong, firm grip. And they're men with a bold stance. We've been looking at that godly character, character that is not only in their lives that is exhibited in their family, but it's exhibited in their relationships. It's exhibited in their personality. Uh, they're, they're men. They're not perfect. They're men, by God's grace, that are predictable, and that classifies and characterizes their life. We look at verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So today we look at the second characteristic. We've been spending time for two weeks on that first characteristic. We've examined the elder's godly character, number one. But number two, we see now his strong grip. The idea here is he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. A, a few observations here. When we're thinking about the canon of Scripture, th this is a passage that, that points to it. There is a trustworthy word that God has revealed that has been taught. It's trustworthy because it's from God. The means through which God revealed it was through the apostles. I, I want to read you a passage that... I initially wasn't going to read, but, but go over with me to, um, to 2 Peter. In 2 Peter, we looked at this before, but I want us to see, because when 2 Peter chapter 1, as Peter is encouraging his readers, and a lot of people date this reading or this, this letter about a year later than what we're looking at. And, and he, he wrote to them, knowing verse 20 of chapter 1 of 2 Peter 1, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God 
as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's why we have a trustworthy word that can be relied upon. And, and, and here we see this, this strong grip of the men who are called to lead the church of Jesus Christ. They are to have a firm holding to the trustworthy word is taught. The word hold firm is in the present tense. It means that this is to be characterizing the way they live, the way they minister. They're to be men of the word that hold firm to the word. Think about the opposite of holding firm to the word, to hold it loosely, not be convictional. I, um, I think I love sports, and so I think a lot in sports analogies. So when I was studying this, you won't believe the, the thought that came in my mind. The thought that came in my mind was 1986. I'm dating myself here. A lot of y'all are, are we're studying the uh, anti-Nicene fathers and the post-Nicene fathers. A lot of you, anti is before and post. A lot of you are anti-1986. <laughs> Some of you are post-1986. But I grew up a huge Georgia Bulldog fan. I, uh, I grew up watching Herschel Walker. And I was a little kid, so I was a bandwagon Georgia fan. They were good in 1980, 81, 82. And uh, I didn't know my dad was a Tennessee fan. One of the greatest things that ever happened to me is I did not know that. But um, in 1986, he was kind enough. A guy in the church knew I loved Georgia. And he said, I've got, I'm going to get, we're going to go to the Georgia LSU game. This is Vince Dooley, 1986, Georgia's fight. There's not any divisions in SEC. SEC championship came down to Georgia LSU in Athens, and we drove down there. I was fired up. I was 13 years old, and we got down there. It was amazing. Uh, we bought tickets. Like, the guy, the guy that was with us, he was younger than my dad, older than me, and I thought it was amazing. He got out of the car while we were, we were driving down Athens Highway, and uh, he started walking down the street in back-to-back traffic looking for tickets. This is where I got in trouble, I think, later on. He was a mentor to me. <laughs> but... Uh, he got tickets, and we were there, and it was an amazing game. And um, it was a heartbreaking game. Georgia came back late. They scored, and, and in just heartbreaking fashion, LSU came down and scored, and Georgia had a chance to win the game. And, and they had a young uh, star freshman running back named Rodney Hampton. And uh, James Jackson overthrew Rodney Hampton. They intercepted it, and we were, I was just distraught. But you know what? They had a quarterback named James Jackson. Let me tell you about James Jackson. He was an interesting guy. He probably, standing on a box, was five foot eight. Little bitty dude, but tough as nails. And he always would scramble, but he would scare you half to death when he would run with the football. He would run around holding the football like a grapefruit out. And he wouldn't tuck it. He would run out, and the ball would be way out here. And all the time, he's running around, and he would scramble, and he had great athleticism. But you're thinking to yourself, hold firm to the ball. You know, hold the ball firm. It's like when it's fourth quarter, and there's a minute 50 to go, and your team's winning, and they give it to the running back. Have you ever noticed they carry it a little bit different than they do in the first quarter? They put both arms on that ball. I want you to think about something. The minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ that's worth his salt, the minister of the Lord Jesus Christ that doesn't commit pastoral malpractice is the minister that holds firm to the trustworthy word. The danger is that there are many people 
even in the time of Peter and the time of Paul, that held loosely. They held the word loosely. And, 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 and Paul is saying here, look, yes, I want godly character, but godly character has to lead into this firm holding of the word. But, but I think it's actually in reverse, if you back up with me. I was thinking of this, and I hit, it hit me. I was like, wait a minute. It's, it's no doubt that they're godly men in their character, because go back to verse 1 of Titus 1. Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and their knowledge of the truth. What truth is that? The trustworthy word. Their knowledge of the truth, which accords with what? Godliness. Do you know what that tells me? Godliness does not precede the word. The word precedes godliness. And you could go further than that if you wanted to take it in a different analogy. Grace is prior in the Christian's life. Grace precedes the sanctifying work of the word. God calls us to himself. And when we come into conversion and when we come out of darkness into light, the grace of the spirit, isn't it exciting when you think about if we were going to just look at a, had a whiteboard up here and we were going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, and for by grace are you saved through faith and not out of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. But isn't it interesting that right after that passage in verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So grace is the reason that works flow out of the Christian. And so here these men are men of the word. And as a result of being men of the word and holding firm to the word, the grace of the Holy Spirit had produced in their life through the power of the word, godliness. You know, today, I want to challenge our our younger people that are here. How do you become a godly teenager? How do you become a godly kid? And think about it. You know, if if, if the gospel doesn't work in the life of a fifth grader, a sixth grader, or eighth grader, it's not a true gospel. Because, you know... Where there's death, God brings resurrecting life. So God defies the impossible to men, and what, what is impossible to men is possible with God. And so how do you become that, young people? You become people of the word that humbly seek after Christ. And as you run to the word and as you pray and as you meditate on God's word, the spirit of God, if you've trusted in him, will grow you in godliness and will teach you and will reprove you. You know what it means to be reproved? It, it means, have you ever been, uh, I mean, now it's, it's, everybody does it. Now, how many times does your GPS go nuts on you when you're driving? And immediately, you know, it's like, ah. And um, I'll tell you one of the greatest discoveries of all time. I've not done it yet, but on ways. The app Waze. Everybody know what that is? You can uh, put other voices in. And let me tell you about a secret. Somebody recorded Stan Gross 
And it is a ways, you can, you can use it in my own ways. He can tell you when you're off track. That's too good to be true. That ought to be sold, Stan, if he's here. And, but what, when you're driving and you're going the wrong way and that thing tells you you're off track, now think about it, it immediately begins to correct you if you follow its guidance. And so, so the man of God, the young man of God, the older man of God is an individual empowered by the Spirit through which the Word is guiding and leading their life. And so this is an individual holding firm to the Word. He's holding firm to it. I, I love this. One, one comment that I found that I thought was great, and I thought I just wanted to read the quote, being devoted to the truth Holding fast the faithful word means respecting the Bible as the inspired and inerrant word of God. It means affirming the Bible's priority, authority, and sufficiency for what we believe and how we will live. It means the minister of God places himself gladly and willingly and in full submission under the word. He is a word man, a word minister, a word constrained and captivated slave. He will preach this word and only this word. He would never think of standing before a congregation and doing anything less than proclaiming the word of God. He will honor what God has said, and he will honor how God has said it. Bottom line, he will be an expositor of holy scripture. Well said. He holds firm's to the trustworthy word as taught. It's a trustworthy word. It's trustworthy because it's from God. We looked at Second Peter chapter one verse twenty-one. Men spoke. Or they were men were moved by the Holy Spirit. God spoke to men as they were moved by the Spirit of God. And and this word trustworthy. If you think about it, if I say, hey, who can you trust? And you say, I'm going to. Tr-, if I say, tell me who's trustworthy in your life. There's going to be people that you mention. It may be a relative. It may be a grandparent. It may be a school teacher. It may be a coach. But it's something or someone you believe that is worthy of belief, trust, or confidence. And here he holds firm to the trustworthy word that has been taught, as taught. I love this because when we look at the scripture we see examples of this. And Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, 13, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy, earlier from 2 Timothy, Paul says, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. I remember the first time that I heard it taught like this. I was listening to uh, John Stott, and he said, you know, he goes, he said, what are the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ? They're not the red-letter edition Bibles. They're the Bible. Why? Because it's through Christ we have the Word. You know, if you sometimes think about that, that's an amazing concept. The sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ are the words that have been revealed to us in the Scripture. So it's not just what Jesus said in his ministries in the Gospels. It's the Word of God. And, and, and now Paul is saying, look, you hold firm the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching that accords with godliness. 
2 Timothy 1, 13. Hear this illustrated in another setting. This is the heart of Paul for the minister. And he says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. What is the sound words he had heard? The trustworthy word is taught. That which was, it's, it's the way Jude puts it. I love this. Jude says, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Now, listen to this. That was once for all delivered to the saints. And who were, I mean, you got the Holy Spirit working through the apostles to deliver this word. And Paul says that's the standard by which the minister is looked at. And, and, and we shouldn't be surprised because we're warned by this. You know, this is right after Jesus ascended into heaven, just several years after. 2 Timothy 4, verse 3 for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. So Paul is giving this mandate. Yes, do they need strong character? Absolutely. But they need a firm grip on the word. I love the word that is used here. He says there in um, the passage in verse 9, notice the wording. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction. Let me read you another passage here, 2 Timothy 2.2. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses in trust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And what would they teach? They will teach what they had heard from him, which was what? The apostolic word, which was to be regarded, held firm to, the trustworthy word. And it's referred to in verse 9. It says, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. There's two consequences here or two, two outcomes. He's got to hold firm to the trustworthy word in order that he may be able to do two things. The first one is what? Can you see that here? He may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Doctrine. Now, what does that mean? I, I got some help here. You look up this word in a lexicon, and the word instruction, the primary meaning, meaning is the word encourage. That he may encourage others in sound doctrine. And isn't there a place for that? It reminds you of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in our life where he tenderly nurtures our lives through his revealed word. And think about how we could all attest to that, where we are ministered to by the spirit in his word. You think about it. Why is it necessary for the minister to stick to the word? Because it's the word of God that is sure, not the words of a minister. It's like uh, I heard a guy say one time, one of my uh, professors, he says, 
as a minister, you stand in authority only to the means that you stand as one under authority. You stand in authority as one under authority. And what are you under authority of? You know, a lot of times I think, and I, I know it's, it's easy to characterize different areas of the country, so I don't mean to do this in a flippant way, but Bible Belt culture tends to deify the pastor. And we lose sight of the priesthood of believers. We lose sight of the reality that the preacher is in, in need of grace as much or more than anyone in the room, but definitely is in, is in much in need of grace. Paul says he was the chief of all sinners. And, and what, what happens here, though, is that as he speaks the word that's been given, he's confident that people cannot be nurtured by his own words. They can't be nurtured by his own stories. They can't be nurtured by his own ability to motivate. They can't be nurtured by what he feels is best for the congregation. They need a divine word. And they need a word that can nurture people. They need a word that can encourage people. And what is that word? The word that comes from God. The word that comes from God. So his confidence is not in his own speaking ability. His confidence is not in his persuasive words. His confidence is that he is stewarded with this, entrusted with this word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And he speaks with it understanding that it's not his ability, it's the Spirit's ability to bring about life as he speaks to the listeners. It nurtures people. But you know what, what I found interesting? There's another connotation of this word. The word instruct can mean tender, nurture, encourage, encourage people. But can also, because of passages like Philippians 4, 2, 2 Thessalonians 3, 12, this word can sort of I'd give a sense of a stern entreaty. Now think about it. The minister of Jesus Christ he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. You know what the word sound means? The word sound is the word healthy. It's used many times in the pastoral epistles. It's used in Timothy. It's used in Titus. And you know what the word means? It means healthy teaching. I love this. You're going to see in chapter 2, healthy teaching produces healthy living. Now, if there's healthy teaching, what does that imply? There's also teaching that is not sound. There's teaching that is deadly. There's teaching that brings sickness. There's false teaching. So what do you do? You stick to the trustworthy word that's been given, and as a result, you hold firm to it in order that you may not only encourage, but you may also sternly entreat others. And I love this application here in the pillar commentary. It says, here it may carry variable weight depending on the situation a pastoral teacher finds himself in. Some need encouragement. Some need stern entreaty. It's interesting because, you know, not only behind a pulpit, but in a counseling situation, a teacher of the word of God will use the word of God in different applicational ways. 
And some people may need to be sternly talked to. Others may need nothing but pure comfort and nurturing. Depends on the situation. And and really, isn't it amazing how the Holy Spirit does this work as we can listen to a message and the Holy Spirit can take the truth and, and sternly entreat us. At the same time, one can gain great, tender, nurturing encouragement out of a message because of the word of God. But he's got to give instruction in sound doctrine. It, it's sort of, uh, it's like I love being around uh, kids that know a lot about something. Maybe it's music and bands. Maybe it's sports. They're like me growing up. They know all this useless information about sports stats. And they're like, hey, did you know this? No, I didn't know that. I'm fascinated by it because I like sports. But it may be someone that loves movies or someone that loves, you think about any hobby, and they know it so well, wherever they are, they just start rolling those facts out. Now think about it. Here is a man that is so committed, so dedicated, so immersed in God's word that he now becomes a vessel through which that word flows out of him to speak into other people's lives in a way that connects their life to the truths of God's word. I love this, but not only does he encourage, the second part of this admonition here is what? He says, in order that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to do what? Rebuke those who contradict it. Rebuke those. He's got to have a backbone. Rebuke those who contradict it. To reprove, to reprove, to rebuke, to admonish, to convict, to show to be wrong. He's someone who's willing to stand not only in the face of doctrinal error and call it out, but he's someone who's willing to stand in the midst of a culture and to point to the truth regardless of the backlash. He's willing to show firmness. He's willing to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, we're going to see this more as we keep going here because you're going. It, it sort of flows out of this second call. You give instruction in sound doctrine. You rebuke those who contradict it. You teach God's word, not only encouraging those who need encouragement, giving stern entreaty to those who need stern entreaty, and giving rebuke to those who need to be rebuked by it. I I think this goes into our second, our third characteristic, the number one characteristic, solid character, verses five through eight. Verse nine, strong grip on the word in order for what? Instruct in sound doctrine and also to reprove, rebuke. But now the third characteristic, a bold stance, a bold stance. I think a lot of people's thought of what a pastor is. It's funny being a, being someone in the ministry, you hear a lot of people's views of the ministry and it's sort of humorous. My dad used to tell me that when he would get on a plane and People would find out what he did, and he'd tell them he was a minister. They'd break into hives. He said they started acting crazy, you know. And and I've learned that to be true. But a lot of people have different ideas. And I think a lot of people that I've met, the the perfect minister in their mind is the minister on Little House on the Prairie. The nicest guy in the world with no backbone at all. 
But boy, is he a nice fella. Friendly, kind, just love the guy. He's so kind and nice. Let's just have him over for dinner. But when it comes to standing for the truth, ah, I don't know about that. He didn't want to offend anybody, right? Now, now think with me. Here's what you've got. It, it's not the man that is described here is not just this mushy, kind man who loves the Bible. He is a man with a bold stance. He's a man that is willing to stand in the face of opposition. He's a man willing not to compromise. He's a man marked by humility, but when need be, he's bold and firm and knows what heels to die on. This is what he's describing here. And he's going to explain this here. And I, and I love it because it's uh, the heart of the gospel that Paul has. He was changed by it. A man that was a persecutor of the faith, a man that murdered Christians, a man that, that literally they laid the robes of Stephen at a man named Saul. And now he met the Lord Jesus Christ on his road to Damascus. And he was a man that was personally transformed by the risen Christ and now this man was discipled by the Lord away from everybody out in the wilderness in the desert. He comes back as a minister of grace to the Gentiles. And he's a man so changed and transformed by this word that he is not playing around with the enemies of the grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look how it reads here. Verse 10, for there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. There's, there's great joy in encouraging. There's nothing like it. There's nothing like the joy that you can have in encouraging other people. But I think the one thing, you know, it's anecdotal because it's only my experience, but from hearing from others and reading God's word, most importantly, you're going to be misunderstood. You're going to have people speak against you. You're going to be mischaracterized by your beliefs. You're going to be called out. You're going to be labeled. You're going to be given weird ways of people saying things to you that you know what they mean by saying them. And all of this to say, that's just touching the surface. Here's a man, Paul, who had been driven to the point of death multiple times. And yet the only reason he hadn't died is because God wasn't done with him yet. And he knows more than anybody. I mean, he's the one that can teach any minister of the gospel. And what is he saying here? He says, there are many who are insubordinate. He's not just talking about on Crete. He's not just talking about on Crete. That was his experience. His experience, remember, in, uh, I was reading one place, and, and, I, and I hadn't considered this. In 1 Corinthians 16, 9, it says, many opposed Paul at Corinth. Remember in Philippians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul says, many lived as enemies of the cross of Christ. 
And so now this experienced minister of the gospel, I love this because this is the way this, this ought to work. The older train the younger. The older encourage the younger. And, and so now you've got young Titus, probably in his 30s, and you've got the apostle Paul. And Paul's telling him, and if you think about there's anyone he would have looked up to, anyone that he would have wanted to emulate, it would have been a man like Paul who had all this experience in all these journeys and all these places. And what does he tell him? He says, look, Titus, there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. It's like there's nothing new under the sun. And when it comes to people who oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're going to be, I mean, you've seen one, you've seen them all almost. You see the same root characteristics in the lives of rebellious people towards the word of God. They're insubordinate. They're insubordinate. Remember that word? That was the word that would disqualify an elder if his children were insubordinate. They can't be faithful children if they're always seeking visibly, publicly to usurp their father in his role of leadership. Insubordinate. Insubordinate people without order, disregard for authority. Uh, one commentary said it like this, and I thought it was very pointed. Not subject to something or someone. They're not subject to anything. You know anybody like that? insubordinate. They're their own person. They're not going to listen to a boss. They're not going to listen to church leadership. They're not going to listen to anybody. You know why? Because they have their democratic right to do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. it. There's a humility that softens us. There's a humility that brings us up under the idea to, to, to be brought up under God's order. And you remember even when talking to the wife about submission, submission is not given in that passage to the husband, it's given to the Lord. It's a good picture. It's a good picture that anybody that falls up under a submissive attitude towards the authorities God has placed in their life, they do it out of a changed perspective and a humility to the God who gave the order. But this is a person who doesn't have not only time for God's word in their walk, they don't have time for God's order. They're insubordinate, without order. Uh, they're also people known as empty talkers. I liked some of the other translations on this. One says vain talkers. Uh, the Phillips translation says who talk nonsense. One says they engage in useless talk. One says vain jangling, <laughs> senseless talkers who impose on people with their empty arguments, Moffat says. I like this one. Disobedient babblers. All noise, empty parade, and no work. Empty chatterers, another one says. They're empty talkers. They speak, but they've got nothing to say. I'll tell you, we could all learn from that, couldn't we? It's like, uh, I pray we're seeing the bigger picture. We're seeing the bigger picture, I pray, of uh, the only good thing that can come out of our lives is Jesus. 
because we read these lists and this is who we are apart from the goodness and the grace of Christ. We're filled with pride. We're filled with arrogance. We're filled with our own agenda. And yet what makes us different now as a community of the faith is that we say we've been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And now the Holy Spirit lives within us and he's showing us a different way. And he's given us a different temperament. You remember like even in Paul's day, there was words that Paul had to come up with his own word because humility was so pushed down in the society of the Romans that they didn't even have a word for some of the ways he was describing humility. Why? Because when we come to understand who we are in light of the gospel, then and only then can we be humble. Then and only then can we understand who God is and who we really are. But these people, they're empty talkers. They're, they're, they're just insubordinate, empty talkers. I tell you, girls, watch out who you date. You find a boy that seems like a really good-looking dude that doesn't follow Christ, you're probably going to end up with an insubordinate, empty talker. And I'll tell you, they age. <laughs> they may look good at 18, but that 18-year-old turns into a 60-year-old one day. You hear, hear what I'm saying? The, this is the concept of the world. This is who they are. This is who we are. And look what he says about these false teachers. They're deceivers. The word deceivers means imposture. It's one who diverts others from the right way. And you come through here, and he, he keeps going. He says, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. They got to be silenced. I love it. It's like he's saying, look, man, you, you got you, you, you to be willing to face it because you're called to care for the church of Jesus Christ. You're called to shepherd the people. You're called to lead them, to guide them, to guard them, to feed them. And when enemies sneak in and they come in seeking to distort, you got to show a backbone and you got to be willing to stand for the truth. You got to live for the truth. You've got to confront error. They must be silenced. It means to muzzle, stop the mouth, put to silence. And it says they're upsetting whole families. I, I find it interesting because a lot of times, False teachers, it appears even back here, they wouldn't necessarily be up in front of the whole congregation, but they would influence smaller groups. I remember growing up in a church that was very large, and so often because I was a preacher's kid, I would hear of the error that tended to try to come into that church would come in through a Sunday school class. It would come in through a small group. It would come in through a Bible study. It would come in through small arenas where somebody would begin to teach false doctrine and it would enamor a small group. But what happens? Wrong ideas have consequences and it upsets whole families. Why? Because it's not the sound doctrine. It's not the healthy doctrine. By teaching for shameful gain. Again, you know, one of the characteristics you see throughout the New Testament of, of false teaching is not only immorality, but you see this idea of they're out to do it for the money. There's shameful gain. Um, 
You remember John 10, verse 12, Jesus says, He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Why? Because he's a hired hand. He's, it's like Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. They're teaching what they ought not to teach. And then we see this, this reference to a poet, prophet. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Who was this guy? The, most historians believe this is Epimenides. Epimenides was a prophet that lived at Crete, a poet that lived at Crete, 7th century BC. And he was speaking this about the Cretans. So when he says, and this is true, he's not speaking about all the works of Epimenides. He's saying what Epimenides' assertion was about the people of Crete was accurate. He's saying these people are evil beasts, liars, lazy gluttons. They, they're known by their lies, they're known by just a, they're evil beast. I mean, think about going after your own lust, evil beast. Um, you think about lazy gluttons. The word in the Greek is literally slow bellies. When I was growing up, there was a church basketball team uh, in our church league, and they had, their team's name was slow bellies. And I, we always thought that was funny, and it came out of this Greek word. Slow bellies, lazy gluttons. They weren't using it for that term. They were just, they were just out of shape uh, guys in their 50s. But this means they're given over to their appetites. And you see it not only in the way that they deal with food, but you see it in the way that they deal with all their lust. You see it in the way they deal with their life. And then he says, this testimony is true. It's true about the Cretans. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, and I love that. I love this. Therefore, rebuke them sharply, not that you can be self-righteous, not that you can go off on everybody you think you're better than, not that you can get this sense of superiority as a leader. What does he say? That's not the gospel's way. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Love it. The heart of uh, Paul you remember Paul says this, you know, in, in his teachings, because he knew that 2 Timothy 2, remember he says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. I love it. They, it's the heartbeat of an individual who's bold in the face of opposition, but confident that God's grace can overcome the most disobedient of all. I love it. it, it there's a humility of the gospel here. It's like, okay, I'm going to be willing to stand for the truth, but I know the Holy Spirit can overcome the greatest opposition. I got a lot more to cover, but we're going to land the plane right here. 
We're going to continue with this next time as we move into chapter two. But this morning, I want to just remind us here, what are the three characteristics of elders we're seeing in some broad categories? They're, they're men with godly character. Number two, they're, they're men with a firm grip. Number three, they're, they're men with a bold stance. And I think, you know, I was thinking about what are some applications not only to leadership? Number one, I, I think uh, I, pr- I pray that our church would pray not only for current leaders, but for future leaders. Uh, I pray that we would be leaders who would follow and be known by these characteristics of godly character, a firm grip, and a bold stance. We'd be willing to stand against whatever error of the day we face, whether it be false views of Christ, false views of sanctification, false views of the Holy Spirit, whether it be false views of salvation, whether it be wokeism, whether it be progressive theology, whether it be gender ideology, whatever it is, I pray that we would look into what we're facing as a culture and speak the truth to it. That we'd be willing to walk in accordance with the truth. But then what about you today? If you're sitting there going, well, I'm not a leader in the church. So I guess this is not for me. I I got three challenges for you. Number one, hold fast to the truth. Hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast. Again, my heart goes out to young people today. It's like, by God's grace, be a Daniel. Hold fast. You're in a you're in a you're in a climate of a culture that is going everywhere, and no one has direction. Look to Christ. Hold fast to the truth. Be a light. Be a light. Hold fast, just like these elders are called to do. The ones that are qualified. Another one to remember is the truth is to be proclaimed, not hidden. The truth is to be proclaimed. The, the goal of the, of the word of God being taught and sound doctrine is not just for Bible studies to be enamored with all they can learn about the truth of the word of God. It is to be a confrontive truth to the world, a light. And it's like if you hide it under a bushel, it's hard for it to shine. The third one, and we'll see this next time, but... Consider the fruit. Look to the root. Consider the fruit, but look to the root. What you see going out this way is indicative of what's happening internally. That's true not only of elders, it's true of false teachers. Next time we're going to look more into what was the error that was going on at Crete. We're going to continue in verse 14, 15, and 16 and move into chapter 2. Let's bow our heads. Lord, I thank you for the wonderful grace that's in Jesus. We thank you, O God, for the hope of Christ. We thank you, Lord, that it's a good gift of your grace that we can be anything different than what we were before we knew you. And I pray, oh Lord, I pray that you would give us a a heart of humility, gratitude, but I pray, oh God, we'd have firm boldness.
because of your calling and because of who you've called us to be. I thank you, Lord, again for this church. I pray that uh, today, I pray every person here hears the hope and the good news of your word. I pray, oh God, where there needs to be rebuke, people would hear it. But, oh God, I pray where there needs to be encouragement, people would be nurtured by the amazing grace in Christ Jesus. It's in his name we pray.